Welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Colossians. Colossians, a letter from Paul to the church of Colossae, offers a beautiful picture of who Christ is. With the knowledge of Christ's preeminence, we can face the external pressure on our faith. Paul encourages the reader to put on the new man and to let the knowledge of this newness in Christ guide every aspect of life. The series is presented by David Rushton. David has served for many years as the worship leader at Calvary Chapel, French Valley. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Colossians as we discover Christ in all. to the book of Colossians. Colossians in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. Before we get started, I want to, Jamie once shared with me something that sticks with me. And every time I hear kids, whether it's in the back or in the foyer, she said to me that she heard one time somebody say, the sign of a healthy church is men singing and babies crying. I, I've turned it to be like loud kids, right? Like the sign of a healthy church is people singing and kids running around. You know, that's training up the next generation. That kind of stuff, if that bothers you during worship, I'm gonna encourage you to check your heart. Don't let that stuff during teaching or, or worship get in your way. Instead, praise God that he has blessed the church with um, such a blessing. There's nothing better in my mind than hearing kids. And, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of them, so. <laughs> I better like it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I know, yeah. All right, so Book of Colossians, that's where we're at today. For so many, the Christian life is nominal. They are Christians, uh, but, but you wouldn't know it unless they told you, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, there's no evidence in their life. There's nothing you see on the day-to-day -day that uh, really proves what they're claiming to be. There's many others who attend church and they go to Bible study or maybe they hang Bible verses in their house. Um, you know, but their relationships are really lacking and there's, there's a real lack of depth there. And maybe they're more than nominal, you know, they're engaging in the things that God wants us to engage in, but they're not really letting it fall deep. And then on the other hand, there's those who are earnestly seeking God. They're really trying, but they totally misunderstand what it was when Jesus said that he fulfilled the law. These people tend towards legalism and they really think that they have to do something to reach heaven that they have to somehow contribute into salvation. But the Bible's clear that salvation comes through Christ and it's a gift and that we can't do anything to earn it. These issues aren't new. It says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. These aren't unique to the 21st century. The early church dealt with a lot of pressures uh, that caused many to stumble in realizing what this Christian life is really about. We're going to begin this study in Colossians. This is a beautiful epistle. If you haven't read this in a while, I'd encourage you to go back and read it and to really think about everything that it's digging into. If you, if you look in New King James Version, it's, it's written uh, in paragraph form. If you look in something like the uh, Christian Standard Bible, you'll see that some people think there's a poem in this uh, 
epistle, and it's written as a poem, and it's quite beautiful. And, and this book is really going to dig into who Jesus Christ is and how that should affect your life, the day-to-day. Uh, Paul's going to start by talking about Jesus's place of importance, how he is the son of God, that he, he is the first in all things. And uh, it's going to speak of how it was God's will that he would reconcile us to God the Father. He's going to go on then to speak about the external pressures that Christians face, uh, worldly philosophies. You know, at the time in the, in the Roman Empire when he wrote this, Philosophy was like a huge part of, of what Romans dealt with. You know, Greek philosophy, uh, like Stoicism, and um, uh, I forget the other main big one. Starts with an E. Can't remember it. Um, but, you know, we deal with that today. We might not put on big tags and think of it like Greek philosophy. But, you know, the world has a way of thinking about things. And they want you to think the same way about those things. Uh, there's also then pressures towards legalism. There's, there's those that think you really ought to be doing more. You need to prove it better. You need to, uh, you need to, uh, you need to do these things, not because they're good things, but because that's how you get to heaven. And, and that's not the point, right? There's also internal pressures. There's our own sin. There's carnality and selfish desires. And Paul's going to speak about those things. And Paul's going to talk about this stuff, and it's all going to culminate in him proclaiming in chapter 3 of this book, but Christ is all and in all. He's going to go on to tell believers that if Christ is in you, you have been made new. And this being made new should result in a change of action, that your behaviors are affected by the fact that Christ dwells in you. And the spirit dwells in you. And it should affect every aspect of your life as you accept and acknowledge Christ's lordship. So I'm excited to share with you what God has been sharing with me uh, in this book. Let's go ahead and pray and ask that he would open our hearts. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the time that we have to dig into your word. Lord, thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your word, Lord, and and in a way that we can really come to know you. Lord, I pray that our desire would be what your desire is, real, deep, intimate relationship, that our knowledge of you would not be superficial, but we would be rich and, and um, full of meaning, and that it would affect our hearts and minds. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray that you would guide this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in. Colossians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. If you aren't aware, every book that's written by Paul is actually a letter, and either to a church or to somebody specific. And so as with any letter, it's going to start with who has sent the letter, or who has maybe written the letter. So Paul, it starts off with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul's identifying himself as an apostle when when Paul was a persecutor of the church, Jesus appeared to him in a miraculous way and called him into Christian ministry. Paul acknowledges that the fact that God has a plan for him and by God's will, he became an apostle, not because of anything that Paul did. If you read in Philippians, Paul will tell you all his kinds of, um, you know, Jewish roots and 
authority to speak on things of God because of, you know, he knows his lineage and he knows the, the scriptures forward and back. Here he's saying, that's not why I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then he says, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is Paul's close companion. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll hear a lot about Timothy. He accompanied Paul on uh, the second missionary journey through like the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and Greek areas. And Timothy is the recipient of two of Paul's other letters, first and second Timothy. Let's continue into verse two. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Uh, so it's a letter. He's also going to identify who he's sending it to, to whom it may concern. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Uh, Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And um, in like the 5th century BC, Colossae was a major city. It was a, a, on a major trade route, and they were known for things like textiles. So it had become a really big city. But by Paul's time, trade had actually rerouted east, uh, west, and northward through Laodicea, and it became like a farming town, and it was of no importance to the Roman Empire. So he's really writing a letter to some podunk town, like French Valley, you know? Like, California doesn't really care about what's going on here, uh, you know? It's not that important. It's just a town where people live and are gathering in Christ's name. Um, so that's kind of the context of where this letter is being sent. This letter was written uh, in the same time period of some of Paul's other letters. Uh, and in fact, it was probably sent at the same time as the letters of Ephesus and Philemon. If you were to look on a map, Ephesus is on the way to Colossae, and they were written in the same year. So a lot of scholars think that, you know, one person probably carried all these letters into the East. Uh, it was also... Uh, there's another letter, uh, a letter to the Laodiceans. God did not preserve this letter in his word, uh, but Paul will talk about it at the end of this book, that there was another letter that went to a nearby town as well. Uh, also, Philippians was written at the same time. And it's always a good idea to keep in mind the context of Paul's letter. We, he was under house arrest when he wrote all these things. Um, if you've never heard about you know, what, how Romans dealt with prisoners, he would have been chained to a Roman soldier the whole time. Uh, but Paul, to him, these circumstances didn't matter. Christ is all, is the verse that we read earlier. In Philippians, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So he's under arrest. It, you know, we think of house arrest, you know, you, you sit in your house, it's fine and dandy. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't as nice. You had a Roman soldier who was there to intimidate you basically all the time. And he says, basically, uh, you know, it didn't matter to me. And actually, it turned out to be kind of an awesome thing. And, and Paul's perspective on that is really important and is something that should challenge us to think about our circumstances. Paul sees that his current circumstances are not beyond the limits of God's sovereignty. As we consider his words in this apostle, we ought to think about how the Christian life as a new man isn't dictated by the world around us, but is built upon Christ's redeeming work according to the will of God the Father. 
Let's continue reading. So in uh, verse three and four now, he's actually opening up into the body of this letter. He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of of your love for all the saints. So there in verse three, Paul expresses thankfulness and prayers for those who are in the family of God. But in verse four, there's something that I feel is pretty easy to miss, but I think really puts into perspective the rest of what we're gonna read today. He says in verse four, since we have heard of your faith, this letter to the Colossian church actually stands unique among all of Paul's writings. And that is that this is the only letter that he wrote to a group of people he's never met. Every other letter, he either went to their church, he planted the church in some cases, or he was, uh, had a relationship with the individual that the letter was being written to. But the church in Colossae, he's never been there. Paul is expressing his thankfulness and offering his prayer for brethren that he's never met. And when reading this letter, I really feel a sense of Paul speaking to me. I've never met Paul, <laughs> you know? And, and so maybe we can apply a, a lot of what he desires for this church and understand it in a way that uh, he's speaking to the Christian life more in general. Paul is going to say that he's heard about this church. Uh, let's continue and uh, let's reread verse four and continue into verse five. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Paul's heard of their faith and their love for the saints, and they have this faith and love because of their hope. I found uh, this part interesting in that it echoes some of Paul's prior writings in 1 Corinthians. He says, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. And, And he's seeing this in that church, that they have faith and love because of their hope. Uh, Let's talk more about this hope. First Peter tells us what this hope is that Christians have. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The Christian hope is something special. It's something that really binds us together in that it's not the same kind of hope that the world has. If you look up the Greek word for hope, it talks about expectation and it talks about confidence. It isn't like, oh, I hope this happens. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, I hope the tigers are out at the zoo, but you have no idea if they really are or something like that, right? This hope is something that we can count on. It's, It's an assurance. It's, it's, there's no doubt in our mind about this hope. And we should uh, really think about it that way and not let the world and its definition of what hope is uh, color that knowledge. Because we can count on this hope, it should guide us into faith and love like it did the church of Colossae. Continuing in verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the world of the, uh, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is being, bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul continues in sharing what he's heard about this church and he's commending them for believing what they've heard. Um, 
you know, this church is now like a, a second degree group of people. It, Jesus didn't preach directly to them. Paul didn't preach directly to them. But somebody brought them the word and they believed it. And now he's hearing about their belief and their faith and their love and their hope. Um, them hearing this gospel is part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission that the gospel should be preached in all the world. And there have been many places that have rejected the truth. And you can read about Paul being stoned and kicked out of cities and stuff like that. But in the places that the message has been accepted, it's bearing fruit. And Paul is seeing that fruit in the Colossian church as well. Continuing in verse 7, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. And here we learn of Epaphras. Epaphras was another companion of Paul. Uh, in the book of Philemon, verse 23, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Epaphras was the one who brought news of this church to Paul in Rome. Uh, Epaphras came to Rome and found uh, the house that Paul was being uh, held in and, and gave him news of this church. And Paul's commending the Christian church for receiving the truth while also affirming that Epaphras is a faithful minister who you can trust his preaching because he's being faithful to the gospel. Um, not only have they received God's word and believed it, but they bear witness in the spirit now that dwells in them by their love. The Epaphras um, declaring their love in the spirit is a big part of what Paul's looking for. How, how has the word that they've received affected their behavior? And he sees that it's one of love. Here's what I get from what we've just read. Right? Paul has heard about them. What would Paul hear about me? Or what would he hear about you? Or maybe someone else who's alive today, right? I'm getting at what kind of reputation are we fostering? How we conduct ourselves is very important. The spirit lives in you and you should act like it. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Do you bear witness to the living hope through faith and love? Is that evident in the way that you behave such that if someone were to see it, they would report to a third person, hey, that guy's got the spirit in him. He's full of faith and love, and I can see it clearly. John 13, 35, Jesus speaking says, by, all, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you're a Christian, you must understand that you carry God's name with you. You should consider this carefully when engaging with others. If you have a ccfv.life bumper sticker, don't go cutting people off on the freeway, okay? You're carrying God's name. I mean, I get that that's tied to our church, but people are going to see that and they're going to see that's a Christian and they just did something obnoxious. Um, also, though, that means don't cut people off. Don't remove the sticker so that you can cut people off and they won't know it, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying the fact that you're a Christian should affect, okay. Anyway, seriously, are your interactions with other people saturated in love, right? Think about your interactions with the 
person in the grocery store or when they bag all our groceries in crazy ways and the bread is underneath cans of soup, you know? Like, are you like, gosh, these idiots, or are you filled with love? This is a struggle for me, <laughs> honestly. Um, okay, <laughs> full confession there. I struggle with that. And, um, you know, these seemingly simple or non-consequential interactions carry a lot of meaning because I profess Christ. And those around me are going to know that because I'm going to tell them. And then they're going to look at my actions and wonder how do those line up with who Christ says that he is and who he ought to be making you. An important note about this idea of reputation is the person who's evaluating your reputation that's important to consider as well, right? There are people in this world who will call you spiteful and hateful and ignorant and arrogant just because you're a Christian. And they don't really care to look at any evidence. They're going to hate you. That's not whose evaluation of our reputa reputation we care to receive, right? Here in this book, Paul is the one who's evaluating what he's heard about them. We should be looking for another Christian, who has the authority to speak into our lives. I'm talking about accountability here. We should be looking for somebody who sees our interactions out in the world and can speak to us about the behavior of them. And they can affirm like, hey, I saw the way you dealt with that situation that really honored God and is a great witness. Or, you know, are you willing to let somebody be like, hey, that was pretty bad and let's talk about it and we need to work on it, right? An honest and open relationship with someone uh, who can see from an outside perspective is really important in helping align your life with God's word. So continuing on in the uh, book here, the next three verses are going to give six things that Paul then prays for, for the Colossian church. Uh, but these prayers, they apply more widely than just to that local church at that time. And these are things that we should be praying over other believers, especially our leaders, right? As you're reading through this, think about, I need to be praying for Pastor Rick and Pastor Randy in these kinds of things. But they're also the types of things that we should be striving in, things that we would hope other people are praying for us. And so we're making a concerted effort to improve in these areas of our life. In fact, if we pursue these things, I think that they will protect that reputation that we carry uh, that bears God's name. Because if we're focused on the things of God and, and really earnestly trying, our slip-ups are not so often. And they are, um, you know, there's grace and there's mercy in that. If you're focusing on these things, your witness of salvation and reconciliation will be undeniable. So let's read on now in verse 9, and let's see what God, uh, Paul's prayer is for the Colossian church. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first prayer is for knowledge of God's will with wisdom and spiritual understanding. Knowing God's will for you, that seems like a pretty big thing, right? It's like... People spend their whole lives trying to figure out what God's will for you is. The Bible talks a lot about it. And I think what Paul's getting at here is not maybe specifically like 
your calling and what exactly the details of what God wants you to do. But God has a will for you. You can read in uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, this is God's will for you. And he continues into some things. Um, but we can know God's will. Ephesians 5.17 says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul's saying, hey, if you don't know what God's will is, then you're probably not paying enough attention. And you really should be reading your Bible more, <laughs> is probably what he's saying. <laughs> uh, if you're still struggling with knowing God's will, James also has a suggestion for you. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without repro reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask. If, if you really are struggling in this idea of what God's will is for your life, spend time in prayer and spend time in the Bible. And God will reveal to you what it is that he has for you. Paul's prayer here is that we would come to know God's will and to have an, a spiritual understanding of its application. Continuing on in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Secondly, we should walk worthy of the Lord. Paul reiterates this idea in several of his letters uh, I like the way he says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, when I first started leading worship at this church, it was almost 10 years ago, and in the fall of 2013, there was a, a worship conference down the road at what used to be the uh, Calvary Chapel Conference Center. And there was this workshop called um, Developing and Maintaining a Strong Worship Ministry. And I thought, nice, I'm new to this. I'm going to learn some stuff. And, you know, that teacher offered, you know, some good, like, practical bullet points. of like, do this and don't do that and do this. And I don't remember any of them. Not a single one has stuck in my mind. But he really stuck on this idea. And this has sat with me now for almost 10 years. The idea that he came to ask, does your conduct reflect the fact that God called you to this position? Now, whether that's my calling as a worship leader or, you know, as a teacher or at work as a technical trainer or as a father or as a husband, in each of these callings, my conduct should reflect my belief that it's God who put me there, that I'm there for his purposes I'm not there because I deserve these things. I'm not there because I'm so smart and work is lucky to have me doing what I do. You know, it's, it's not about me. God has allowed me to be in that position. And I should walk in a way that shows clearly that that's what I believe. And if I walk uprightly in these things, that's what brings him joy. Now understand that the results of you walking in these things is not your responsibility. The outcome is God's business. But if you're going about what God has called you to do in a faithful manner, that's all you need to worry about. What comes of that is his business. Let's continue reading in verse 10. Being fruitful in every good work. Okay, so the outcome is God's business, but here it says that we should be fruitful. Well, it's Paul's prayer that they would be fruitful. And, and this idea that Paul's talking about here is speaking to, um, like, out of whose resources are you working here? What are the things that you're choosing to expend your energy on? 
Are you straying from the things that God has called you to? Or are you staying focused on the right thing? Because if it's not what God has called you to, even good things are wearisome, right? There's uh, this idea that, like, you know, God told me to do this thing, and, and you ought to then do it. But we should consistently and regularly come back to ask, is God still asking me to do this thing? Or am I now working out of my own abundance and my own resources, which are shallow? You know, an example of this is, you know, we used to do the, the um, worldview series, right? We started that because there was a real need to counter what the culture was saying. There was a lot of really heavy issues that were uh, full of confusion, and we wanted the church to know, hey, this is what the Bible has to say about this stuff. And Pastor Rick was really faithful to consistently come back to making sure we talk about these things. But over time, Pastor Rick continued to pray about it, and he got the feeling that he was continuing in his own power in that thing, and that maybe it wasn't what God was calling to anymore, and he could be doing something else, so he dropped it. And it wasn't a big deal, right? I mean, he would probably never say anything. I'm up here saying it, because it's a good example of, of realizing when you've reached the end. God, if he tells you to do something, he doesn't necessarily mean for the rest of all eternity. You know, he could have a job for you now, and then he wants you to move to something else. This is important because if you, if you don't move on to the next thing when he asks you to, you won't bear any more fruit. God must be the abundance from which we draw. Our own hearts are wicked. Our desires, if we want to do something and that's what we're going to do, it could lead us astray if it's not according to God's calling. And our resources are shallow. This is where, you know, things like burnout are going to come from. Somebody who, you know, just puts and puts and puts and, and doesn't realize that, you know, God has told them to move on to something new and now they're burned out and they can do nothing anymore, you know? John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And this is the point. Paul's praying that the Colossian church would be fruitful. And what he's getting at here is that they would abide in Christ, that through him the fruit would come, but by them focusing on staying in him and not getting lost in, in the other things that they might do. All right, moving on, also in verse 10, uh, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul has prayed that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will, and here he's seeing that we are seeing that he also wants us to increase in the knowledge of God. This word knowledge that's used here comes with this idea of uh, full discernment and acknowledgement. We should concern ourselves with deeper things like doctrine and theology. We live in a church culture where it's pretty normal to come on Sunday morning to receive the message that is written in a way to apply to people of all different levels of faith. But that means that a lot of times, a message on Sunday morning is going to be geared towards either new believers or unbelievers, uh, drawing people into the family. And those who are mature in their faith might feel that that message lacks something that they need. 
And Paul's praying about that. He wants us to increase in knowledge. The author of Hebrews suggests that at some point we ought to be moving on from simple things of faith. Hebrews chapter 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, this is like a reproach. He's saying, you should be past this now. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We should be digging into the deeper things of our faith, working out in our hearts and minds what this Bible is about. There's a lot in here. I can tell you just from studying Colossians as I have so far, there's so much more in there than what I'm able to share here in this space. And it's really challenged my understanding of who Christ is. And I've been a Christian my whole life. And for all of my adult life, I, I feel like I've been a very intentional Christian wanting to increase in knowledge. And yet here I am reading this book, having my mind blown about things. And again, I'm not going to get that on a Sunday morning usually. Are you in a Bible study? Are you reading your word on the daily? You know, uh, Andy talked about the new um, Wednesday night service that's going to start. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. Wednesday night's going to be a totally different type of teaching. It's not going to be a Sunday morning. The, the, I, the idea is that there will probably be more mature Christians there. Pastor Rick's going to have the opportunity to really dig in to something deeper. And we should desire so much to engage in the deeper things of faith. Continuing on in verse 11, we're going to move on to the fifth thing that Paul is praying for. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Paul prays that we would be strengthened. I think he probably means like strengthened in general, but notice that it does say for all patience and long suffering. Paul is no stranger to the fact that the Christian life is going to come with trials. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, he says to Timothy, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. God has enlisted you as a soldier in this spiritual warfare. And a soldier's concerns and battles are following the commands of his superior. Now, I've never been in battle. I'm not a veteran. But, you know, you could probably talk to guys like Mike or Troy. You know, they have more recent knowledge of what it's like to be in those situations. And, you know, a soldier who's in battle, yes, they're going to always care about their family back at home. But in that moment, in the heat of battle, that can't be what their mind is on. They need to be focused on following the orders of a capable leader. Because that, you know, that team as a squad needs to do what they need to do so that the whole thing happens in the way that, you know, higher command has planned for it to happen. And in this spiritual battle, God is our commander. He's the one who's enlisted us. And we need to be ready to face the battle with the intention of obedience, doing what he's asked us to do, even when it's painful and even when it hurts. He also says that our attitude in these battles should be one of joy. You can read uh, 
First Peter, if you need God's perspective, in the midst of trials. Paul himself was no stranger to trials. He speaks from a place of authority in this. And he came to this conclusion, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which, I shall, which shall be revealed in us. Paul's saying, like, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of stuff. But guess what? It's not even worth my time to think about it, to worry about it. All these hard things, my mind is focused on the future and what God has promised for us. And I feel like this is something that's pretty hard to talk about. And as I was writing this message, I struggled with this point because what I don't want to do is dismiss the things that people are dealing with. People are dealing with hard stuff, things that I've never had to deal with, things that are harder than I could probably even comprehend. And there is pain that I don't have the words to comfort. And that's real. But the truth is that joy does not come from our circumstances. It can't. And you can't let the, word te- the world tell you that it should. Joy is a product of knowing that Christ has reconciled you to the Father. And this brings us then to the next verse, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Finally, Paul wants us to be thankful. We are thankful because we realize that God has made a way for us to be saved. He has made us right, and we have the hope that we talked about earlier. We and all believers have a portion in what God has prepared as our inheritance, that which is undefiled and incorruptible, that is everlasting life free from sin, and eternal fellowship with God and all the saints. In the next two verses, Paul's going to say it even better than I can. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul uses this imagery of being delivered from darkness, and in verse 12, he had talked about the saints in the light. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, this is what Jesus said to him. In Acts chapter 26, he wants Paul to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul continually walked in thankfulness that God called him out of a life as the persecutor of the church and into ministry. Uh, scholars estimate that Paul's conversion probably happened in the year 34 AD, and this letter was written in 61. This is almost 30 years later, and Paul hasn't forgotten this calling and even the imagery that Christ used to tell him what his ministry was going to be like. I get the sense that Paul desperately wants people to see things the way that he sees them. You know, Christ appeared to him miraculously in blinding light and told him these things that you're going you're gonna to bring people from darkness to light. And then Paul now looks out into the world after 30 years of ministry and still sees people walking in darkness and wants so bad for them to understand the things that he understands. And we should be in the awe. We should be in awe of the fact that God desired to save us, not humanity, but me individually. God desired to save me. 
And we should linger more on this thought. We should let it be at the forefront of our minds more often. That God, creator of the universe, holy and perfect in every way, saw sinful man and didn't choose to just wipe it away. You know, something's bothering me. Get it out of here. I don't want to deal with that. Christ saw us and he saw our lack and he saw our our inability to do anything for ourselves and he had compassion on us. And it should be our prayer that God would help us to convey this message of redemption and forgiveness in a way so genuine and passionate as Paul is expressing here. That when we share the gospel with others, we're not just reciting what we may have heard on Sunday mornings for the last 30 years at church, but that this is something real, something that day to day is affecting our hearts and that you know we're meditating on more and more. And when, when people ask us about it, we're excited to tell them about it and to, and to, in the same way as Paul, to want them so badly to understand what we understand. We're going to end in like five minutes, so <laughs> this is a real short service. I keep doing this. All right, so Paul prayed these things for the church in Colossae, uh, but they pertain to all of Christ's followers. We should be longing to see God work these things in our lives, and we should be praying for those around us, our leaders, like we talked about. We should be praying for Pastor Rick and Pastor Randy in these things, praying that God would, would make them knowledgeable of his will and that they would walk worthy of their calling, that they would be fruitful, that they would be strengthened and that they would increase in knowledge and that they would find themselves in more and more a heart of thankfulness. We should be praying it for those around us too. We all need to increase in these things. And this should be a prayer that this whole generation of Christians could increase in these things to bear a better witness for Christ. And we should be praying them for those younger than us too. You know, we don't have much of a youth ministry, but children's ministry, you know, those kids, they're, they're you know, newborn to 11 years old. That's going to be the people who carry Christ's name into a harder generation than ours. And our prayer should be that God begins now the work of working these things into them so that when they're truly challenged, when those kids hit high school or graduate high school and think about going off to college, that these things are ingrained inside of them. That when people challenge them about what the Bible says, their knowledge has been increased to a point where they're confident of what it says. And they don't need to doubt God's words because somebody else doubts them. And that they would be strengthened in those trials because those trials are going to come hard. And not just in their, you know, college life, but through adulthood and everything. We all can see the world is heading into a darker and darker place. And we're not going to be the ones who deal with it 50 years from now, you know? They are. And so our prayers should be fervent for them. And we should be sharing the gospel with those around us. This is really important. We should be sharing the gospel by word of mouth. But our lives need to line up with our words. This is super important to the world. They are waiting for a chance to call Christians hypocrites. They, they jump at the idea of somebody 
doing opposite of what they've preached. And this is why, you know, guys behind huge pulpits, when they fall, it wreaks havoc through the whole nation, not even just in Christian circles, but the, the world latches onto that and loves to talk about how depraved Christians are because of that kind of stuff. And so if we make Christ the center of our life and earnestly seek to increase in these kinds of things, we will magnify his greatness and we will, we will protect ourselves from falling into those kinds of temptations and having those kinds of failures that uh, the world revels in. When our actions are aligned with our true, rich, and deep faith, our lives will be a testament to the God that we worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words that you've put uh, here in the, the letter from Paul to the church of the Colossians, Lord. And I pray that we would take these things and apply them to ourselves, Lord. We would see where, um, where we fall short, Lord. And maybe falling short is, starts with just the desire to have more. Lord, if, if we find ourselves being complacent in our faith and not really caring where it goes next or not caring enough to do anything about it, Lord, that you would start there, that you would, you would put a fire beneath us to make us realize just how important this is. And Lord, I pray that um, our relationships with other Christians would be um, built upon these ideas of, of helping others into the next step of their faith um, through, through these things, Lord, increasing in your knowledge, caring about things like doctrine and theology, and, and knowing that, though, that knowing who you are in the right way is very important for sharing who you are to those outside. And Lord, I pray that we would keep in our minds that our actions are very important because we bear your name. Lord, that we would quit dragging your name through the mud and letting others find a reason to scorn our faith. Lord, but we would prove that your work of redemption and salvation and forgiveness are truly transforming. Lord, that we would show people that we are made new in Christ and they would desire that newness. They would see Lord, how we respond in the trials of life and, and they would wonder why they struggle to respond in that same way. Lord, I pray that for those unbelieving that you would break down the walls of pride that they've built up, that they would see that they need you. And Lord, help us to guide them into a knowledge of you in love and in gentleness. And Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about Christ in all through this study in the book of Colossians. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in prayer. So please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email at prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to give others hope in Jesus Christ. 
You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.